0: You are listening to Feeling Good, a podcast for dentists. I'm Dr. Laura Mock, the life coach for busy dentists. This podcast explores how to feel better in all aspects of our lives so that we can be our best leaders. If you have been feeling stressed about being the owner of your practice and you want to change what you are getting at work and in your personal life, you are in the right place. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of my podcast. I'm Dr. Laura Mock, the leadership coach for Busy Dentists. Today is our 21st episode, if you can believe that. And I just want to say, first of all, it has been my pleasure to be speaking to you all these months. I only do two per month, and so it's been half a year or so, and I just want to say that I'm having so much fun. And I'm really Glad that you are along for the ride. I think each of you is an amazing person. So today, it's June 5th, and we are in the middle of two national crises. We've got the pandemic, which we've been talking about on the podcast somewhat. And then we also have riots, and we have a, a time in our country when everybody is divided and we are finding and looking at the seeds of discrimination in our country and looking at the people who have been a victim of that discrimination for hundreds of years. I don't have anything official to say about um, what we should be doing. There's a lot of different ways to look at it but I did recently talk to you guys about a time when my family experienced discrimination. And I wanna point out that the discrimination that we experienced was not to the level of what our people of color in this country have experienced. But as a mother of a transgender son, um, I can say that the LGBTQ community does sometimes experience discrimination. And I want you to, I want to encourage you to listen to that episode if you haven't yet. It's episode number 18, how I solved, how I used my coaching skills to solve a very personal problem. That's the title of the episode. And I encourage you to listen to it on video if you can, because I teach some really important principles of how we look at a problem. Um and I think that you might find it really helpful to go back and hear that from the perspective of now we are looking at discrimination again, um, and how do we want to show up in the face of that discrimination? And then I also want to point out that the tools that I use in that podcast episode number 18 are available to you for free on my in my free course that I put out a couple of weeks ago, which is called Leading Better Starts With Feeling Better. So if you get onto that podcast episode and you're like, man, that does make a lot of sense. That's going to help me quite a bit. Then do yourself a favor and go to my website, thelifecoachforbusydentists.com, and I'll include that um, website in my show notes. Go over there and click on Get Free Help. And you can get a booklet that I designed just for you on how to solve problems like this. And it's not how to solve world problems. It's how to deal with what's in your mind right now, the stress and indecision or or sadness that you're feeling. I am here to help you and my coaching skills are here to help you as well. Okay, on to today's podcast episode. I interviewed a really amazing female dentist named Dr. Ronnie Brown a few weeks back, and we, in this episode, talk about her story, how she came to be who she is, and the problems that she solves in dentistry. She's really unique, you guys. She's done a public health residency, and she has a master's degree in public health, and she has worked in a prison almost her entire career. She's one of the people who uh, discovered that methamphetamines were destroying the teeth of Americans who were addicted to substances. And uh, we talk about addiction in a more global sense in this, this episode as well, not just from our patients, but also from the perspective that many of us as dentists end up with substance abuse issues as well, which I feel like is something important that we should talk about. She has a new book out, which she talks about in the um, in the episode as well, which I am very much looking forward to reading. At the time that we um, at the time that we recorded the podcast, the book wasn't even available yet, and it just got released last week. So I'm excited on the timing for this episode, and I hope that you enjoy listening to our conversation. Thanks, everybody. See you on the other side. I would like to welcome to our podcast, Dr. Ronnie Brown.
1: Hi, Laura. How are you?
0: I'm great. It's a beautiful day here in Iowa. It's a little windy, but it's pushing 45 degrees now. So it's actually starting to go a little bit more like spring.
1: Oh my gosh. Well, I'm so excited that we finally have a chance to chat and connect and thank you so much for allowing me to be on your podcast.
0: I know. I just am so glad that Ann Duffy introduced us. Uh, she's just just like an amazing person, attractor.
1: You know what I mean? Everybody Absolutely. Me too. I just love. Well, so. she's a good connector of people and she is, I think she's a matchmaker. For sure.
0: For yeah. sure. So let's hear a little bit about you, Dr. Brown. Tell me about how you became who you are.
1: Well, I am a practicing dentist, and I am a public health dentist by training. I have a master's degree in public health, and then I did a residency in dental public health at UC San Francisco, but you know, working in public health really has been just a love of mine, even going back to dental school, when I think I was probably feeling at times a little bit of you know, a fish out of water, because in dental school... I think the model of care that you're being taught to be able to do when you go to dental school is uh, pr- private practice. Mm-hmm. And school, I think I kind of knew that that wasn't exactly going to be the best fit for me. I really loved my experiences going out into the community and working with patients who really had significant challenges, whether they were financial challenges or just low dental literacy, et cetera. So, Finished dental school and um, I'll I'll share with you, about maybe 10, maybe eight years out of dental school, I realized that what I was doing, which was really, once again, what I was trained to do, was that private practice model. I was doing a lot of associating and um, realized it wasn't my passion. So one day I found an ad in the paper, and this is like 1997. There's no LinkedIn, right? There was no Facebook. You found a job through the Sunday paper. And there was an ad for a dentist at the Sonoma County Jail. Oh. And I cut the ad out, but I said to myself, there'd be no way I'd ever work in a jail. That's just not me. But I cut it out. And every time and I put it on my desk, and every time I walk past my desk, I would look at the ad and say, Eh, interesting, but not me. And then after a week went by, I said, well, what it would hurt to just call. I'll just call the recruiter, get some information, satisfy like, my curiosity, but still not me. So I made the call and I kind of started getting intrigued. And i had never realized that there were like medical and dental services at a jail. And so she invited me for an interview. So, I convinced myself that I'd never take this job, but I knew I wanted to do some things differently in dentistry. I knew that I would need to kind of get myself interview ready. So, I said, it wouldn't hurt to like go for an interview and just have a practice interview, right? And then just kind of see what the inside of the jail looked like. (laughs) (laughs) So, my prep for the interview was Shawshank Redemption had just come into the theaters. Oh, great. And so I um, did my interview prep and I watched the movie. And so I really kind of thought that when I walked into the jail, probably a riot would break out or something crazy would happen. Mm -hmm. All prepared for those type of things. So when I drove up and walked into the building, it was very quiet. And I was escorted to where the interview was and, I wasn't seeing, you know, cages and people banging and catcalling. It was just kind of like a country club. <laughs> you know, I was like, I was like, where are the catcalls? And um, and I interviewed, and it was really providing emergency dental services to the inmates who were detained at the facility. About a thousand. And there's just one dentist, and it would be me. And it was going to be providing emergency services, things that I really enjoy doing. I enjoy oral surgery. I enjoy managing pain. I enjoy making very quick decisions. So after I was formally interviewed, they brought me into the dental clinic, and I met my dental assistant. And at some point, I kind of pulled her aside. I kind of whispered so no one could hear me. You know, what is it really like working here? hmm said, this will be the best job you've ever had. And then I got in my car and I drove home and I started saying, I could do this. (laughs) (laughs) I may not need the interview again. And I went from, you know, putting up a lot of barriers about why this wouldn't work to really becoming excited about how it could work. And I've been there for 23 years and it has really been the best job. That I've ever had.
0: <laughs> wow.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's such a great story. So you kind of were called to it. You were looking at the magazine or the newspaper article and you went in, and the rest is history.
1: Uh, yeah. I think it's sometimes, you know, say, learning to say yes, right? Yeah. Always know how, you know, the dots are going to connect, but definitely that was a pivotal yes. For my career because so many things have kind of flowed and blossomed and been created from my experience working at the jail.
0: Yeah. And that brings me to the fact that you are actually uh, an expert in meth mouth, right?
1: I am. <laughs> I had to become a, well, you know, it's, it's funny, Laura, because when I first, um, yeah, I still remember that my very first patient, and that was back in 1997, who's, you know, about 20 years old. He was in a lot of pain, and when he opened his mouth, I—I um, I think I gasped. I, I think I gasped out loud, audibly, so he could hear me. I had never seen anything like that before. There was so much decay in his mouth;
0: mm-hmm.
1: were blackened. Yeah, they were broken off at the gum line, and you know, this is back in 1997. So I was a relatively new dentist, maybe five to seven years out of dental school, but I was kind of applying what I had been trained what paradigm I knew to explain what I was seeing. So I was like, oh, wow, must be eating a lot of candy, must be drinking a lot of soda. He's not brushing his teeth. And that was how I was assuming Mm -hmm. were the causes of this state of decay that I was seeing in his mouth. But then, you know, my next patient came in, same scenario. And I was just like, over a couple of months, I was like, I I know we've all had patients, right? And even when I was in private practice, mm-hmm. right? Patients who eat a lot of candy and drink a lot of soda and sometimes never floss their teeth, but their teeth were not looking like this. Right. So I knew that what I was seeing was not just the results of candy or poor oral hygiene or soda consumption. You know, it was something else. But the problem was, is that I think as dentists, we assume, or we pretend that we know the answer, and we forget to ask the question, right? Yes. And so, one day I just said to a patient, you know, I'm gonna be honest with you, I don't even know what this is. I haven't seen this before. Why, what's going on in your mouth? I said, what are you putting in your mouth? Why do you think you have so many cavities? And it was when I just acknowledged that I was stumped, mm-hmm. Gave me, the answer they were like, Dr. Brown, I use methamphetamine. Now, Laura, I didn't know what that was, <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, But where do you get that from? <laughs> do you get that at the GMC store? I mean, like, seriously, I thought it was some type of nutritional supplement. Wow, <laughs> so I was like, I've never heard of that. Where do you get that from? They're <laughs> like, From the street, mm-hmm. oh. And so, you know, on a serious note, I started to ask a lot of questions and my patients were so willing, and I think honestly sometimes relieved that somebody was asking them and interested and trying to understand and not making these assumptions. And they didn't feel that they had to pretend and go along with what was the elephant in the room. And so, this is back in 1997. You know, there weren't a lot of things being published about the oral effects of methamphetamine. So, I literally learned initially and really probably for the first 10 years of working there from my patients about what it was, how it was causing this degree of devastation in their mouths, mm-hmm. how they were using it, why they're using it, how it made them feel. Mm-hmm. And I really give my patients a lot of credit for being so honest and willing to share because it provided me with this passion to really further understand why it was causing this degree of devastation.
0: Yeah, that's really, really interesting. Now, speaking of substance abuse, we talked before we started our podcast here that we might want to talk about substance abuse among dentists as well. Because what I find as a life coach is that Um, every dentist that I know that I've coached has these parts of them that are so stressed out from, you know, that magical um, combination of type A personality, um, difficult working environment, lots of pressure, pressure on your time, pressure on your perfection, all these things. And so we, we have these parts of ourselves deep inside that we're not really approving of. And when we feel that disapproval of ourselves, a lot of people will do what I call buffering. And buffering is when we take anything that's not actually very good for us, but feels good for a moment to distract us from that part of us that we don't approve of. So that could be um, food, it could be watching Netflix, it could be um, booze or other substances as well. And what I find is that most dentists, most humans really have something that they buffer with. And I I believe that as dentists, we probably buffer a little bit more than the average human. Um, And there is an an issue with dentists and substance abuse. And you told me that you have a story to tell me about that. So I would like to hear about it.
1: Yeah. So, you know, once again, it's uh, life is so interesting. You never really know how these... Experiences kind of connect, and it's really interesting, Laura. Because this, what I'll share with you, was a very significant moment mm-hmm. professionally, but it's also a moment that I, I don't want to say squashed, but kind of put in the back burner of my head for years. And then I kind of resurfaced it as I was developing some course content for one of my presentations. When someone said, well, do you have a story? And I'm like, I don't have any stories other than like my daily interactions with my patients. But then I realized I actually do have a story. Um, When I finished my general practice residency, I was invited to practice with a dentist, uh, pretty well known in San Francisco and I was super excited at the opportunity, someone who I really admired, and his practice was on Union Street, which is probably one of the hippest and trendiest streets in San Francisco. So just imagine, you know, being asked to work for a well-established dentist, to work in this beautiful environment. I mean, you couldn't ask for more, right? Fancy neighborhood. Fancy neighborhood. You know, I didn't come from parents who were dentists. So it wasn't as if when I finished dental school, that doors were just opening up for me. Right. So super excited about the opportunity. We had met and interviewed and um, I wanted to uh, bring some, you know, my own equipment and some supplies to the office. So he gave me a key and said you know feel free to stop by on a weekend whatever to start kind of moving in so I think I had probably selected like the weekend before my Monday start and I just remember the, a beautiful day in San Francisco and I was walking my shoulders were pulled back I had a little swag to my walk I was so excited and um, when I pulled out my key and I unlocked the door and I stepped inside the office was dark and You know, got the sense that nobody was there. But I also kind of got the sense when you walk into a room that somebody was there. So I remember going to the front office and I turned on the light and on the um, receptionist's desk was the Monday calendar and my schedule was there for Monday and I was super excited. And I started walking towards the back of the office. It was still dark and I heard a noise and it. Sounded like somebody was breathing, and I remember just kind of stopping there. I got a sense that I wasn't alone, but it, you know, I think as animals we can rationalize a lot of things, <laughs> you know. And so I was like, "Well, I must be alone because the lights are off and the door was locked, and I had used my key." But then I could hear somebody breathing again, and I think at that moment my eyes had kind of adjusted to the darkness and I could make out just a few feet away from me, lying on the floor, a body. Oh my gosh. And it wasn't anybody. It was a dentist and he had a mask over his nose and the mask was connected to the nitrous tank. Wow. And at that moment I was like, Uh, This is not what I was expecting when I unlocked the door to the office. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I knew in my head I had two choices. One choice was I keep walking towards him and I will not probably work in this practice. Because then he'll know that I saw him. Or I turn around and I leave. And pretend that I didn't see it. And that's what I did. I left and I made it down the hallway to the elevator. And I picked up, there's a pay phone, this is 1990, 1992. Mm-hmm. And I picked up the phone and I was upset. I was, I called a friend. And I was just like, oh, I can't believe just what happened, you know? And I called someone who wasn't in the health profession and they were like, uh, Ronnie, did you check to see if he was breathing? why I'm like, oh, I guess I'm supposed to do those things. You know, is I had to have someone remind me kind of my responsibilities, right? And responsibility to make sure that he's okay. And when I hung up the phone, you know, I was looking at the elevator doors open. I could like go back into the elevator and just walk back down the street and get back in my car and just kind of like pretend I didn't see all of this. Mm-hmm. but I did go back into the office and um, at that point he heard me and um, we kind of made small talk and I then you know did some office work whatever and it was just kind of like the elephant in the room but then I made an appointment to meet with him face-to-face and I shared with him kind of what I had seen and my concerns. Um, and I just said, I probably feel I can't work here. Um, cause it was going to, I, it was something beyond what I wanted to take on, but I did call the well-being, well, the wellness, um, the well-being society for impaired dentists. And I made that call. Yeah. And it was a lot that I learned that day. Right. I learned that I learned about professional responsibilities, which can be uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And um, I did have a professional responsibility to make sure he was okay. I had a professional responsibility to make sure that he was not working impaired with patients.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and I need to make sure patients were safe. Mm-hmm. Um, so I learned a lot of hard stuff that day. <laughs> about that
0: not what you expected.
1: It certainly wasn't what expected, um, you know. But the thing about that was that there, you know, there are, you know, every dental association has recognized that as a profession, we are definitely at a high risk for addiction for a variety of reasons. Right? This is dentistry's a very stressful profession. Mm-hmm. It perfectionism and it attracts a personality type that is definitely type A. And so in dentistry, we're always kind of thinking, right? We're not good enough. This is not enough. Uh, That millimeter is the difference between success and failure. So it creates a lot of internal pressure for us. And as you had mentioned, that whole concept of buffering, some of that buffering started well before we started our very first day as dentists, right? Correct. The buffering started as how we addressed stress when we were in undergrad or dental school. You know, we all had classmates who, Partied on the weekend, Mm -hmm. and the party never ended.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. So um, you know, there's a lot of, and you know, and I think one of the biggest things that we don't recognize is that you know, there's that genetic predisposition for addiction, and many times we don't know if we have those genes that alter metabolism that. trigger the reward center of the brain that alter um, our ability to manage stress. And so, you know, for some people, when they finished dental school, they were able to stop the party. Other people couldn't stop the party. Mm-hmm. And we kind of, you know, party, quote unquote. But when you're dealing with stress and you're dealing with this profession that demands a lot of us, people sometimes learn to buffer in ways that are very uh, ineffective coping strategies.
0: Yeah. They might take away the uncomfortable feeling that we have right now. Right. But there's a net negative to certain
1: buffering. Yes. Yes. So I think, you know, that experience that happened really early and I had no idea I mean, it was definitely a a hard day. It was very disappointing. It was a lot to kind of manage and figure out how do I get out of the situation? How do I protect the patients who are in the situation? But I really never knew full circle how that experience coupled with the patients that I encounter daily would then kind of perhaps fuel my passion for really understanding addiction and substance abuse.
0: Yeah, because it was years later that you, all of a sudden, it came full circle, and now you were treating patients who had substance abuse issues.
1: Exactly, exactly, and so I think, you know, um, you know, what I want to do when I'm talking and and doing presentations, and I really want the audience to understand that, you know, addiction is something that, hap- that can happen to anybody. It's not just the people, the patients that I serve at the jail. It's not something that's just behind the walls of a correctional facility. We all have patients. We all have colleagues that have substance use disorders and we need to be able to acknowledge that and not say, well, that's not in my practice or that happens to Dr. Smith on the other side of town, but it is in our practice. But we all of our patients and our colleagues all have complexities in their lives. Mm-hmm. To see what those complexities are, and we need to, you know, in whatever ways be able to reach out to them and support them because that's a significant challenge, It's a challenge that nobody wants. Nobody wants to be addicted.
0: Right, And I feel like it's important to destigmatize the addiction because when it's when it's stigmatized, then it's harder to get help. Absolutely it be something Absolutely. that we can look at neutrally and say. You know, this person or I have a problem, and I need help with it, and that's okay. Because if I can't believe that it's okay, then I'm going to keep on hiding it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think you know, it's about um, you know, it's about empathy, right? It's about acknowledging that everybody, right, we all have challenges, and all of our challenges. Some of our challenges are the same. Some of our challenges are very different, but we challenges. And I think when someone has substance use disorder or they have a mental health challenge, it becomes easily stigmatized. But so if we can just um, approach it with a degree of empathy, it may not be my challenge, but clearly i had challenges in my life. And I can take those experiences to help maybe understand
0: mm-hmm.
1: the complexity of that challenge for somebody else.
0: Absolutely. That's so wise. We really can't, we can only see what it's like to be in our minds, but if we can, if we can reach out and really think about what it's like to be in someone else's, then it's easier to give that empathy that we need to give.
1: Absolutely. And I think, you know, as when we're dealing with patients who are addicted, if we don't recognize who those patients are, we're not going to be able to treat them appropriately, Mm -hmm. you know? We're going to potentially be doing something that could be very dangerous. We could put our, put them in a life-threatening situation. Yeah. We could be puzzled by why is this treatment plan constantly failing? Why are they representing with recurrent carries around the margins? Uh, why can we never get a hold of this rampant amount of decay? And a lot of times it's because we're not either recognizing what we're treating, which is kind of my scenario when I first started working at the jail, or... We're pretending not to notice, but you know, I, I've had you know looking at my patients, you know, implants placed in patients who are heavily addicted to methamphetamine, and the implants never got restored, and we're dealing with implantitis and just like craziness. And the question is, we have complexity. Was that really even the appropriate treatment plan? And so we had to recognize that these challenges do impact our treatment plan. They do impact the success of treatments. We've got to start talking to our patients about the, and having sometimes difficult conversations, but they're important conversations.
0: Yeah. Hey, I have a question. Is it hard to get somebody, is it harder to get somebody numb who's using methamphetamine regularly?
1: You know, I, it's it's a great question, Laura. It's a question that I'm often, um, Asked, I haven't had that problem mm-hmm. of difficult difficulty with anesthesia associated with methamphetamine. I think probably when someone has an opioid use disorder, mm-hmm. so um, stent- overly sensitized to pain makes it a little bit more challenging. Mm-hmm. And I don't think the challenge is really the anatomic reality of anesthesia. I think it's the behavioral perception.
0: Yeah.
1: Do you understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. That when someone has an opioid use disorder, they are so um overly sensitized to feeling anything. Not mm. differentiate between this is pressure and this is pain or this is touch and this is harmful. And so I find it more challenging not from the they can't get numb because many times I'm able to verify that they're not feeling this, the prick of the explorer, they're not feeling this touch, but they cannot tolerate even feeling pressure and pressure and pain are two different sensations.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow, that's really interesting too. So you wrote a book recently. I did. Why did you go to the travel of that? That's a hard thing. <laughs> <laughs> She's just um, those who are listening and not seeing she just held up her book <laughs>
1: <laughs> um why did I go to the, well I think you know as we were talking earlier Laura I and I was kind of encouraging you <laughs> I had many people who kept saying you should write a book or that's really kind of like the next step for your career as a speaker and you know that was really daunting I don't writing scares me, you know, I'm the type of person that will write a sentence, and I'll stop, Mm -hmm. get it, and is that the right word, and I'll fret over it, and then I'll write another sentence, and I'll look at it, and so it was a very, um, I knew that there were a lot of stories that I wanted to share, and share things I share in, in the presentations that, that might be interesting or very different. And working in the jail, is kind of like, people love to hear the crazy stories. Yeah, <laughs> experiences. Yeah, I so I know I have a lot of stories, but I think I was really scared about the whole process of writing because it's, it's, uh, it's scary, it's hard. But why did you do it then? <laughs> well, um, I challenged myself. Mm-hmm. So I decided last summer, Mm-hmm. I had a little bit of a break from speaking and I knew I was gonna have some time and I wanted to do something creative so creatively and I just decided I'm just gonna do it I you know I read that book by Shonda Rhimes the year of saying yes and I was gonna say yes and write a book
0: mm-hmm.
1: so I gave myself 30 days oh wow <laughs> I said I'm gonna do it I'm gonna write every day for 30 days
0: Mm
1: -hmm. I wrote I started it May 30th I was on a plane coming back from Montreal and um, I started writing the book and I couldn't stop and I stopped on June 30th and on July 1st I handed it over to an editor (laughs) and it was um, a fantastic experience because it allowed me to download a lot of things that were in my head and some I didn't even know were in my head And it helped to crystallize, I think, my presentations. I had clarity in a way that I had not had before. So it really transformed my presentations, what I wanted to share, um, the messaging around uh, some of the key concepts and points. Um, But I really wrote the book, I think, with two things in mind, one for dentists the dental team who have attended presentations, I think it's a great resource. The book is called A State of Decay, Your Dental Guide to Understanding and Treating Meth Mouth." So I think it's a great resource for those who have attended the presentation because there's a lot in there from what addiction is to how you recognize the signs of methamphetamine abuse, how you communicate those concerns, how some realistic treatment strategies, office policies on how to manage the intoxicated patient. It's a... I think a relatively easy read peppered with a lot of stories. Um, but also for those who aren't able to attend my presentations, I just want this information to be out there. I want people to be able to access this. You know, we're unfortunately a nation that's addicted, right? Yeah. We've been addicted in the past, we're currently addicted and we're likely going to be addicted in the future. And so we have to know how to manage this population subset in our practice, but more importantly, As dental professionals, we have an opportunity to prevent someone from ever being addicted by literally just starting to talk to our patients about it. Mm -hmm. You know, we could take someone who's never used drugs and by a simple conversation might cement their commitment to never using the drug. So I really wrote it with a, a number of purposes and goals in mind, but it really has been a labor of love.
0: Well, we will include a link to, can we put it on,
1: is it on Amazon yet? It it's, will be launched on Amazon probably about, I would say about six weeks, but it is available on my website. On which your is,
0: website. That's yeah. where we'll put you then. Yes. Yeah. We'll we'll put your website in the show Perfect. notes so that Perfect. if there's dentists listening who want to read this book, then they know how,
1: where they can get it. Perfect. Thank you so much.
0: Yeah. It's so exciting that you did that. Thank you. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, we are just wrapping things up here. And I just want to thank you very much for being on our show. And I think we talked about some really important things today and that really amazing story. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us.
1: Well, thank you, Laura, for inviting me. And I think, you know, more importantly, thank you for the incredible work that you're doing around wellness and dentistry in women because I think it's all about being well that will allow us to kind of live and experience the best life.
0: That is my mission. That is what I am trying to do. So thank you, Ronnie. Thank you for listening to feeling good, a podcast for dentists to download my free workbook on how better leadership starts with your feelings. Go to my website, thelifecoachforbusydentist.com and click on get free help.